0: Hey, doll hey you doll I'm your host Paula and I'm your other host Cynthia and we are dolls, dolls and, doom. and doom okay so Paula one of our most loved episodes so far was the episode where we talked about the lost Panama hikers and it was filled with all kinds of like mystery and intrigue and uh just like had this whole Blair witchy creepy vibe well this case that I'm going to cover today Is another one of those. It reminds me so much of that case. So today I'm going to tell you the story of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Okay, so in January 1959, a group of 10 ski hikers set out for a backcountry trip in the Soviet Union's northern Ural Mountains. Specifically, they were headed to Mount Otorten, which translates in Monzi to don't go there because these mountains are considered sacred and dangerous. And this has actually been the case since ancient times. So this area is known for its really rough terrain and the brutal conditions. Now, I'm just gonna give you a heads up right now This case today takes place in Russia and a lot of the names of the places and the people are Russian and I'm going to do my best not to butcher them but I apologize in advance for my almost assured mispronunciation of (laughs) some of these names. Okay so this group was 10 very experienced hikers and though this is a very very challenging climb It wasn't anything that this group like shouldn't have been able to perform given their background and extensive experience. Most of these hikers were students and alumni from the Ural Polytechnical Institute. And this group of people had become friends throughout their time there at the Institute due to their shared love of hiking and nature and the outdoors. Their names, and here we go, (laughs) were Yuri Doroshenko, Ludmila Dubinina, Alexander Kolovoltov, Yuri Krivonischenko, Nikolai Thibaut Brignol, Zenaida Komogorova, Simon Zolotaryov, and Yuri Yudin. And they were led by Igor Dyatlov. I told you I was gonna butcher those things. (laughs) They're difficult. They're really difficult. difficult, So I'm so, so, so sorry. Now this was actually not the first hike this group had made together. Like I said, they were friends and this was a common interest. So they were used to traveling together in these kind of environments. Zenaida was a fifth year radio engineering major and she was keeping a journal for the group. And according to her entries, this trip started off really strong and all was going well. This was a really exciting once-in-a-lifetime trip, and they wanted to make the most of it. So between the 10 members of the group, there were several different trip diaries, and several of the hikers had cameras that were used to document the trip. And the group was even making, like, their own newspaper. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was kind of cute. They seem like really fun people, like the kind of people I'd want to hang out with. Just, you know, hey, let's make a newspaper telling of all of our our travels and adventures yeah that's awesome yeah i think that's pretty cool uh one of zonita's entries her journal entries reads and i thought this was so cute here's what it says it says quote i wonder what awaits us in this trip what will we encounter the boys solemnly swore not to smoke the entire trip i wonder how much willpower they will have to get by without cigarettes end quote i just thought that was really cute that is cute (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, like, okay, did the girls ask the boys not to smoke, or was it some kind of dare, like, or could, you know, would it make this trek a lot harder if they were smoking? Like, I just thought, what what caused this? Why did they swear not to do this? Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so on January 26, 1959, the group hitched a three-hour ride on the back of a truck to the District 41 logging site. And this is when Yuri Yudin, sadly, started feeling really sick, thanks to his sciatica, and he didn't think he could finish this trip. So sadly, he decided to leave the group and head back home. And because of this one choice, which at the time, of course, seemed super disappointing, Yuri Yudin was the only person out of this group to make it home alive. I had a feeling that was going to be the case. I really did. Yes. So good reminder that sometimes things happen and we're disappointed in the moment and it's for our greater good. I always try to like remember that. Okay, so according to their journal entries, the next day the rest of the group began their journey up the mountains by foot and according to these same entries, the route was much more difficult than they had expected and they were expecting a rough trip. So on February 1st, 1959, the group began ascending towards the summit, but the weather changed and there was a pretty severe snowstorm that caused the hikers to get turned around and they actually started heading in the wrong direction, up towards the top of Kolat Sayakal, which interestingly translates in Manzi to Mountain of the Dead. That's a little foreboding. That is literally what I have written here, foreboding. Are you serious? I do, (laughs) because here they are in this area called Don't Go There, and now they're climbing Mountain of the Dead. Quite foreboding, to say the least, is what my notes say. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I believe you, I believe you. Great minds, doll. Seriously. (laughs) Okay, so after a while, the group did realize their mistake, but at this point, they'd been going in the wrong direction for so long that Igor Dyatlov decided that they should probably just make camp for the night where they were, which was on a slope on the side of a mountain. I don't know anything about hiking a snowy mountain in Russia, but from what I understand, you aren't really supposed to set up camp either at the base of a snowy mountain or on the side of a mountain, because this puts you at risk in the event there were to be an avalanche. However, because they had lost so much time, it's believed that Dyatlov didn't want to lose the altitude by traveling back down to the base of the mountain. And so he decided to set up camp where they were. And later Yuri Yudin thought that perhaps he had maybe even like considered this good practice for camping on the mountain slope. And so this is where they decided to set up camp. Now Dyatlov had agreed to send word to Yuri when they made it safely to their next destination. But he'd also warned Yuri that he believed this trip would take much longer than they had planned. He knew that on a trip like this, you had to plan for the unplanned. So Yuri didn't think twice when the date that the group was scheduled to return came and went. But when Yuri still had not heard from his friends by February 20th, a search party was sent out to look for the hikers. So it took a search team six days to find the camp. And when they did, Paula, the scene was unusual to say the least. Here
1: we go. So, Cynthia, I know technically we're still in the middle of summer, but true Halloween fans know it's time to start thinking about our favorite time of year.
0: That's right. You're reading my mind. It is never too early to plan your Halloween costume, and this year, I'm going to be using McCabe's costumes for all of my costuming needs. Yes, they're the best. They're a family owned company, which is amazing because I love to support other small businesses. Me too. And they have high quality costumes that ship right to your door. You know what else is
1: great about McCabe's costumes? Not only do they have an amazing costume selection, they also carry super fun leggings. Which is perfect because a lot
0: of us are still working from home and we just want to feel comfortable, right? That's right! I love wearing cute leggings around the house or in the recording studio because not only am I super comfy, but I also really look cute! And McCabes carries leggings with all kinds of super fun prints. I especially like the Hocus Pocus print, which has these adorable vintage style witches and pumpkins and ghosts all over them. That print totally has this Dolls and Doom retro vibe that you and I love. Yes, and the best part is you can do all of your shopping
1: online and have your costume or comfy festive clothing and accessories delivered
0: right to your door. Girl, you gotta love that. After this last year, I want everything delivered right to my front door.
1: I know, me too. And right now, McCabe's is running a special offer for Dolls and Doom listeners. Just use the code DOLLS10 for 10% off your purchase. McCabe's Costumes also offers free shipping on orders over
0: $35. Polly, you know what I love most about McCabe's Costumes? They actually give back to the community. They donate costumes to kids in need who would otherwise not have access to one. And if you, our listener, would like to participate in this awesome cause, you can make a donation directly on the website. Just hit the donate button right on the homepage and you can donate $30, which McCabe's costumes will then match. They match every single donation received. So with your $30 donation, two kids who would not have access to a costume will get one. And this year McCabe's also supported autism causes and their local Shriners Club. I love
1: this so much. Not only are you buying something amazing for yourself, but you are giving back. What other costume shop does that? Exactly.
0: So shop for your costumes or festive wear at McCabe's Costumes and feel good about making the world a happier place at the same time. Go right now and get your Halloween costume, festival wear, or comfy leggings at McCabe'sCostumes.com. That's M-C-C-A-B-E-S costumes.com. And now, back to the show. So the first thing that the search party found was the group's tent. And upon investigation, they discovered that the tent had been torn or cut open from the inside. Yikes. So something happened causing this group of people to feel the need to escape their only shelter so fast that they couldn't even be bothered with unbuttoning the toggles that were holding their tent flap closed. That's scary. It's very scary. Inside the tent was a lot of the hikers clothing and shoes and surrounding the tent were nine sets of footprints, get this, some barefoot, some only in socks and one was wearing only one shoe weird. Let's just like stop for a minute here because the temperature was approximately negative 27 degrees and these people tore themselves out of their tent in the middle of the night and are running through the snow with very little clothing and no shoes. Leaving the shelter in these conditions so severely underdressed is pretty much considered suicide. So whatever caused them to do this obviously it must have been terrifying and come upon them like really fast. all of a sudden and I'm kind of thinking that maybe we, they were in the process of you know getting
1: undressed and putting on their pajamas to to get in their sleeping bags or whatever they have okay because if, if all of them are in c- certain parts of undress just with their feet that's the only reason I can think of to take them off is you know take off your shoes and socks maybe to get into your
0: sleeping bag okay that makes sense and see again i don't know anything about this kind of sport but where my mind goes i would have assumed that in this kind of an environment they would sleep in their shoes but that must not be the case or maybe like you said they were like in the state of undress because all but one person was barefoot and then that one person only had one shoe on right i don't know maybe in these tents it is warm enough And the sleeping bags, they are warm enough where you, like, take your shoes off where you sleep. But in my mind, when it's that cold, you would just, like, keep everything on. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'd probably keep everything on. First of all, I would be in a hotel. But (laughs)
1: let's just pretend that I would be in a tent.
0: Right. I I would leave everything on just to keep warm. I would think so. But what do we know? What do we know? (laughs) You'd be in a hotel and I'd be at the base of the mountain. (laughs) Well, searchers continued combing the area. But remember, there was almost constant falling snow. And these searchers had to make sure that they also stayed safe. So it took a week after the tent was found when about a mile away from the campsite, right on the edge of the forest, the first two bodies were found under a cedar tree. These bodies belonged to Yuri Doroshenko, who was only 21 years old, and Yuri Krivanoshenko, who was 23. Duroshenko's body was a strange brown purple color and he had gray foam coming from his right cheek and gray liquid coming from his mouth. The medical examiner also noted liver mortise spots found on the top surface of his body, indicating that he'd been turned over after death. Weird. Very weird. Now, both of these hikers were wearing only their underwear and they were next to the remnants of a small campfire. There were broken branches at the top of this tree that they were laying underneath, suggesting that maybe one or even both of them had tried to climb it, and their cause of death was exposure to the elements. So were there clothes anywhere nearby? We'll find out about that. Okay, i jumping ahead, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I heard on the Morbid Podcast, who covered this case... And I absolutely love the Morbid Podcast. I'm sure all of our listeners listen to them, but they're my absolute favorite. So if you haven't listened to them, check them out. They are actually the ones who turned me on to this case. But according to the Morbid Podcast, there were pieces of skin and blood found in the upper branches of this tree. But I personally searched and searched and I could not find this anywhere, but I did want to mention it because it's really creepy, right? Yes. I trust them because they like really deep dive and do a lot, a lot of research. They have access to documents that I could never like find. So I trust that there probably is documentation of this, but I just couldn't find it. But so creepy, right? Yes, very. So if that's the case, you know, they either were, I don't know, bleeding on their way up or cut themselves on the tree. It it was just violent. It was like a simple climbing of a tree. It was more of a violent act. Okay, so closer to the campsite, the bodies of Rustem Slobodin, who was 23, and Zenaida, who was only 22, and Dyatlov, who was 23, were half buried under the snow. It appeared that they may have actually buried themselves in a way to like shelter themselves. They're kind of taught to do this, like to build up, you know, like a cave or something like that that they can take cover in to try to protect themselves from the elements. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So investigators believe that these three had at one point been with the other two that were found under that tree but investigators thought that they had left and they were trying to make it back to the camp when they died and they too were barely clothed. Their cause of death was also exposure and strangely Slobodin and Komogorova also had liver mortise spots on the top surface of their bodies indicating that the bodies were turned over after death. That seems really weird right? Yes. Until you hear about this. So there's this book called the Dyatlov Pass Incident which was written by Alexei Rakitin, and in it the author speculates that the medical examiner mistook frostbite for liver mortis on these three bodies. So according to this author, liver mortis and frozen cadavers can change color when the body is moved into a warm room. So the appearance changes from purple to light red and then it will darken again. And the same thing happens when a corpse with frostbite is defrosted. So this author believes that the medical examiner could have easily just misidentified the frostbite as liver mortis, which, really it makes a lot more sense because then it wouldn't necessarily mean that these bodies were moved after their death. I want to talk about why these five people may have been so severely underdressed. Okay thank you. <laughs> I know that's been bugging you Paula. Yes. Where are the clothes? So there's actually two theories for this but the first one I'm gonna tell you about is called paradoxal undressing. Have you heard of this? I don't think so. Okay. So. Paradoxal undressing occurs when hypothermia victims, even though they're freezing, they start to feel like they're burning. So they get this burning sensation. So their brain is registering this really super cold feeling as being very hot in an effort to feel cooler. Sometimes they take their clothes off. And we've seen this sometimes in cases like where someone dies in a very cold environment, they will have taken their clothes off, which unless you know about this phenomenon, it really makes no sense. On the surface, it can make a scene seem really suspicious, but it actually is a very reasonable explanation if you think about it. However, in this case, you have nine experienced travelers who knew enough to build a campfire, and some investigators believe that whoever climbed that tree was doing so to try to get a better view of the campsite, And remember, the group of three was believed to have been under that tree at some point and then tried heading back to the campsite and just never made it. So all of that to say, would a group of people as experienced as they were, who knew how to protect themselves in these conditions, would they have taken all of their clothes off thinking they were burning when they were in the middle of negative 27 degree weather? I don't know. I don't know either little side note so my last pregnancy I had a lot of complications I was in and out of the hospital but towards the end of my pregnancy I was diagnosed with something called reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome so what this is is the blood vessels in my brain were constricting causing all kinds of weird symptoms well what causes the paradoxal undressing is full body constriction of the veins causing this body to feel like it's heating up. I was so hot, I could not get cool. My husband bought me this AC that literally like goes in your sheets, which freezes everybody out. I could not find relief. I was constantly burning up hot. And so now, and I only learned this through research on this case, but part of me wonders if like to a much, much, much lesser degree, Maybe I was like so hot because my blood vessels were constricting. That's what it sounds like. It sounds really similar. I could not get relief. So miserably hot. That sounds horrible. Right? It kind of makes me think, okay, I can see how possibly maybe this could happen. Okay. In this case, because of this extreme weather in the area, the search party had to be called off until the snow and ice melted away. So the last four hikers were not found until two months later and when they were found it was in a ravine inside of the forest and at this point they were actually found the snow had melted and they were kind of like in a running creek so they were in water oh okay now these four were all wearing very heavy winter clothing however not all of it appeared to be their own which brings us to the second theory as to why the first bodies found may have been undressed it's possible that this group had gone back to their dead friends and taken their clothes for warmth. Okay. I can see that. That makes sense. Yes. Now I do find it interesting that these four who are much more properly dressed, they did not die due to hypothermia like everyone else. So that could be like the first four who were found lightly dressed, they die because they were lightly dressed or were they lightly dressed because they died first and the other one took their other ones took their clothes. Yeah, I can go either way. Cuz these guys who were overly dressed or appropriately dressed, they did not die of hypothermia. Right. Chicken or egg? Which right. came first? Right, exactly. <laughs> you want to know how these four did die? Yes, please. Extreme blunt force trauma. Oh. One investigator even compared it to the violence of a bad car crash. So, the first was Ludmila. She was 20 years old. And in addition to this blunt force trauma, she was found missing an eye and her tongue. What? She was also missing part of her lips, as well as some facial tissue. And a fragment of her skull bone was also missing. Holy cow. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I have not been able to verify. But I did hear that her stomach was filled with blood. And if that is true, that would indicate that she was alive when her tongue was removed. Oh my gosh, no. Right? That's a terrible fact. Mm. Yeah, it is. I could not find that like documented anywhere. So I cannot authenticate that. I cannot verify that. Um, And in almost direct opposition of that, I did read in several places that investigators believe that the removal of these organs and tissues was actually probably due to animal activity. However, I do think it's worth noting she was under lots and lots of snow for months. And then when she was found, that snow had melted and she was in water. So, that does make me question how an animal could have gotten to or to cause this damage. Yeah, they had to have to dig under all the snow. Right. Nikolai Thibault Brignoles, who was 23, had massive skull trauma. His skull was pretty much just like crushed. Zolotaryov was 38 years old and he died due to severe head wounds and a chest trauma including five broken ribs and two fracture lines. His injuries were likened to being crushed. However, there was absolutely no external injuries to his chest. Literally, there were no marks on his skin. Now, Paula, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're asleep in your tent and something happens that causes you to cut yourself out of that tent and run away barefoot in the snow. Now, do you think you would stop and say, I need to bring my camera with me as I run for my life?
1: No, absolutely not. Okay. moving as fast as I
0: can. Right. I wouldn't grab my camera either. But Zolotarov was found with his camera around his neck. And the only explanation I can think of for this is maybe he was sleeping with the camera around his neck. And so when he started running, it just like naturally came with him. Like, the camera's on a strap that was around his neck. Literally, that's the only thing I can think of that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah, me too, that it was already on him. Right. Now, unfortunately, this film was too damaged to show anything but blurs when it was developed. And so, at first, everything on this camera was discarded as unusable. However, after this case started gaining a following and people started thinking, you know, it was super mysterious... These photos were looked at again and this time a lot of people started thinking that maybe these photos did show something. And this is where like this case reminds me so much of the Panama hikers case because you know, you can look at these photos, you really don't know what you're looking at. They could easily be anything or they could be nothing. Right. So there's this one photo from this camera that is most often referred to as number 33. It's black and white. All of these photos are black and white, as it was 1959. This photo appears to me to be a black and white background with a white light or a white blur, something, you know, a little left of center that takes up about a third of the frame. Armchair sleuths believe that this could be a photo of anything from UFOs to a face peering into the tent to a missile falling from the sky. So I show this photo to you. What do you think it looks like?
1: it looks like first of all nothing i've ever seen but again they're black and white so the background is completely black and on the left it almost looks like someone coming towards you with headlights but the one on the left is much bigger and blurry and then the one on the right is smaller and faded but it is a perfect circle like it could be the moon but i really don't know what it is it's just really weird because headlights are exactly the same size right so it can't be headlights plus you can't get a car up there Right? So I have no idea.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me neither. I really don't see anything other than a flash of light. I have no clue. You know what the strangest thing out of the whole camera situation for me was? though? Okay, so besides the fact that he had it with him, is that again, he was found with these severe head and chest injuries. He was crushed. However, his camera, which was hanging right there on his chest, was completely intact weird that's weird right yes okay wait so did the camera have like blood or no pieces of him on it no there was no external injury all the injuries were internal so he was crushed they said it was like something coming like something coming and crushing you from above but not leaving any marks whatsoever on the outside of your body
1: okay here's another question Mm -hmm. is that a type of injury that you could get from an avalanche
0: Mm, we'll get to that okay okay thinking ahead again you are good girl you are good you asked all the right questions thanks well it's not my first rodeo so that's right you've been doing this a while haven't you a little bit you know you should like start your own show like your own podcast maybe about true crime or something what do you think
1: i think that's crazy i need you to talk to
0: If I ask the questions, I've got no one to answer them for that's me. That's true. That's it true. It would just be called Paula's Questions? <laughs> that would be like, yeah, Paula's Questions. There are no answers. Right. <laughs> so three more cameras were found back at the campsite, which seemed a little strange because investigators believed that there were more than four cameras brought along on this trip. And that was actually confirmed by the survivor, Yuri Yudin, who said that almost everyone had a camera. And if that's the case, what happened to the missing cameras? Now, technically, I guess it is possible that they were buried in the snow. But it just seems like the most likely place for them to have been found would have been the campsite, right? Right the film that was found at the campsite was able to be developed and investigators believed that the group seemed happy in these photos and they ruled out the hikers being responsible for each other's deaths okay now at the same time that you can find this documentation saying that yuri yudin said almost everyone had a camera you can also find documentation where he said that there were only maybe three or four cameras among the the group You can even see where he says that camera found around the neck was probably a hidden camera because he'd never even seen it throughout the trip. It's my opinion, a lot of what makes this case so mysterious and interesting is probably all of these false reports and like the out there theories, the thought that bodies were moved after death and those strange yeti reports. Oh, have I not mentioned the Yankees yet? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, there were rumors that this group wrote in one of their journals just a day or two before their deaths. Quote, now we know that snowmen exist. End quote. Interesting. It's a bumble. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Now, this has been widely reported, leading many people to believe that the hikers met their end due to a yeti or some other mystical and dangerous snow creature. And this is a fun theory, right? Yeah. However, the only written piece where snowman is actually mentioned by the group is in a satirical propaganda leaflet that this group put together on the very night of this incident. And this was like a little leaflet that went along with their newspaper. Okay. That's interesting. Right. So that cannot be substantiated that they actually said, now we know snowmen exist. It was like a comic that they right. were doing. But that's been misinterpreted and misreported of throughout course the years. it has. Right. So obviously the theories abound. The most common theories are yetis, aliens. Now there was some UFOs reported as having been seen, and some weird lights in the sky. And it's funny to me that you mentioned like headlights because from January to April, I believe, of that year, locals and travelers and hikers, even soldiers reported seeing weird pulsing lights in the sky Okay. that would move behind the mountains. Russian weapon testing is one of the theories. And Monzi attacks and avalanche. So the problem with the avalanche theory was that when the search party arrived there was no evidence that there ever was an avalanche and even though they were at the base of a slope which is not ideal it was a pretty mild slope and it didn't seem like an obvious place where there was danger of a snowslide. also we do know that at least some of the hikers had obviously survived for some time they had to have traveled a mile away where they were found they had time to start campfires And at some point, some of them were able to leave one spot in an effort to head back to the camp. So if there was an avalanche, it didn't kill them immediately. Also, one of the things that would have actually caused the avalanche or could have caused the avalanche would have been the campers actually digging into the snow to build the campsite. And investigators were able to determine that they had been in the camp for several hours before it was destroyed by whatever destroyed it. So... Again, this avalanche theory, though in some ways it does make the most sense, it's not really a slam dunk. Now, for fans of the Russian government weapons testing theory, there was a significant amount of radiation found on two of the hikers' clothing.
1: Interesting. Like,
0: really high. And is there a site nearby? Not that has been noted to my knowledge. Hmm. It, it was unexplained. Then that's really weird that it was found on them. Right and the morbid podcast brings up a really good question why were they even testing for radiation because that's not typical you don't like just typically test every single mysterious death victim for radiation right were they testing because they knew that there was a possibility of radiation there i don't know or were they just testing for all possibilities but can you ever really test for all possibilities you'd be there forever the possibilities are you know kind of endless and it's 1959. Oh yeah. One of the theories that I found the most interesting not necessarily the most probable but definitely the most interesting is the theory that infrasound caused this. So infrasound is a low frequency sound and it's when the sound waves actually have a frequency below the lower limit of human audibility. So hearing in humans becomes like gradually less sensitive as frequency decreases and the only way that humans can perceive infrasound is if the sound pressure is sufficiently high. Imagine a frequency that you can't hear but is strong enough to cause the items around you to shake and okay. causes like intense ear pain. Yeah I've seen that on movies. Right. <laughs> Well, studies have shown that infrasound can cause feelings of awe or fear in humans. And because it's not consciously perceived, it can make people feel like a supernatural event is taking place.
1: Ah, and maybe that's why they ripped
0: open the tent with a knife to get out. Right. I like this theory because to me, it just kind of makes sense. It kind of explains everything almost. Because really, you could find any set of circumstance. And to me, this... Kind of explains it. Right. You're afraid, but you're not sure why. Right. Scientists have found that infrasound can affect some people's nervous system by stimulated vestibular system, which is our sensory system that provides our sense of balance and spatial orientation. And in animal studies, this has had effects similar to seasickness. You know, think about when your inner ear off. Everything's off. Yeah. You know, you can't even like, you know, you're dizzy all the time. So mm-hmm. add that to this whole thing. In 2006, research was conducted focusing on the impact of sound emissions from wind turbines and the local population felt effects of annoyance and fatigue. And in later studies, inaudible infrasound has been linked to feelings of fullness, pressure, tinnitus, and disturbed sleep. Sound waves have been proven to have such crazy effects on the human body that some individuals at concerts who were extra close to the subwoofers Have suffered from lung collapse and this has been mostly experienced by smokers who are tall and thin and we know from that journal entry that some of these guys were smokers yes i thought that was interesting in 2009 a london student died of a sudden arrhythmic death syndrome after saying that quote loud bass notes were getting into his heart weird that's an interesting theory And the cause of these infrasounds could have been from either, like, the wind tunnels and the altitude and all of that, or possibly from infrasound weaponry that was being tested by the Russian government. Right. Those are those theories. Interesting. Yeah. So a new investigation was opened in 2019, and in July 2020, it was concluded that an avalanche led to the deaths. They say the hikers were forced to leave their camp suddenly and low visibility with inadequate clothing and then died of hypothermia. Researchers believe that a very small avalanche, about the size of an SUV, is what killed the hikers and it was small enough that it filled in the area where the camp was dug, destroying the campsite, but then it was immediately covered with fresh snow, hiding the evidence that it ever occurred why the delay between building the camp and the avalanche if building the camp is what would have possibly caused the avalanche well researchers believe it's because when they initially made the camp the snow hadn't built up yet at the top of the slope but after hours of the catabatic winds which is like a drainage wind that carries really high density air from a high elevation down a slope under the force of gravity plainly like a really strong downward flowing wind that in this case, would have come from the top of the mountain. And these winds can, like, go down an elevated slope at hurricane speeds. So a super, super, super strong wind pushing down. Right. So after hours of these winds and constant snowfall, researchers believe that this avalanche occurred. Okay. As for the bizarre injuries, the researchers were able to find data from car crash testing in which cadavers were put inside vehicles and then rammed into walls. And the force of those crashes caused very similar injuries to those suffered by the four hikers. And interestingly, in those studies, the force was about the same as an SUV-sized block of ice. This area was closed for three years after the incident. And Andrei Kuryakov, who is deputy head of the regional prosecutor's office, said, quote, It was a heroic struggle. There was no panic, but they had no chance to save themselves under the circumstances. End quote. A local mountain pass in the area has been named Dyatlov Pass in memory of the lost group. Wow. That's really interesting. It is interesting, right? It's so different. There's a lot of unanswered questions. Why were they found in such different areas? Why didn't they all stay together unless they all like went to that tree and then two of them died and so the other ones left them and then they died on the way to the camp but then the other four who were found in the ravine i'm assuming they lasted the longest because they were clothed right and the furthest away from the campsite but then what caused their weird injury because here's the other thing if an avalanche occurred and caused these injuries how do they then travel over a mile away with these kinds of they were crushed is it possible that the wind because it was so strong moved them
1: and an avalanche can not just move snow and people but like trees and stuff maybe
0: a tree fell and pushed them with the force of the wind i don't know i guess that's possible but they were in a pretty open area where they were camping and nobody's mentioned like signs of downed trees and things like that okay i guess anything's possible but that for me is kind of like how does an avalanche work that way and then all the other ones, the five people who died from hypothermia, they did not have those injuries. So if they were all at the camp at the same time when the avalanche occurred, why did five of them not have any injuries but died of hypothermia and the four that got away not die of hypothermia but have these horrible injuries possibly caused by an avalanche. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's those it kinds of questions. So it's like, oh, here's an easy explanation until you really start like so you really start asking the questions yeah which is why we need paula's podcast just the questions <laughs> just the questions <laughs> <laughs> all right paula you got any uh interesting information for us i do and it really kind of fits because this story also takes
1: place in russia
0: wow look at that we really are in sync today we are look at that
1: all right tell me so you know how you're online reading about murder and the internet says hey if you like that story you should read this one Just the other day, the internet was totally right, and I checked it out. So in Russia, a 224-pound woman killed her husband by sitting on his head. Tatiana and her husband, Adair, had been drinking and arguing, and she was a lot bigger than he was. She pinned him down on the bed face down and held him there, even though he begged for forgiveness. After he stopped moving, she shook him and was yelling at him trying to wake him up. And the worst part is the daughter saw all of this. She ran to the neighbors for help. A woman came back with her, but when she saw what was going on, she decided it was just a domestic squabble and she went back home. The neighbor woman later returned and called an ambulance. Adair was pronounced dead at the scene. Tatiana claims she just wanted to calm him down. However, a medical examination shows that she was sitting on his neck, using her legs to wedge his face into the mattress so he couldn't move. She was convicted of causing death by negligence after the murder charge was dropped. She was sentenced to 18 months with corrective labor in order to pay $3600 in moral damages. Wow. I've never
0: heard of anything like that. Me neither. And like I can see that happening like as an accident, but they were fighting, I guess. They were fighting. Drinking so... drinking and fighting, not a good combination. No. So then yeah, that's like manslaughter at the yeah. least. Yeah, at least. You no, know, it's one thing if it's an accident or if like you're having romantic time or something like that <laughs> and it, you know what I mean? Yeah. But like um but when the person is begging to be let up, right? You let up. Right. And oh no, I'm just trying to get him to calm down. That's not like, calming anyone down. No, that's manslaughter. That's, yeah,
1: and that's making them more mad. No matter if you started out angry or not, if you're sitting on my head, I'm mad at you. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's the reaction I have. I agree. Sitting on someone's head is just not okay, right. no matter how much you weigh.
0: That is true. Wow. That's really interesting. Isn't that weird? Okay. Well, a lot of weird things happening in Russia. Seriously. What's going on? I had a foreign exchange student friend when I was in high school from Russia, and I, she was just the cutest thing. I loved her accent. Of course. And she was like so beautiful, and she would talk about, we need to drink some vodka. <laughs> and it was just like, she was just, couldn't help but to like her. Yeah. Totally cute. I have a thing for like the Russian um, accent and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, those are our cases from Russia today. Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Hey, if you like what you hear, we would love it if you would leave us a comment and leave us a rating. It really helps to get our show in front of new listeners' ears and we super appreciate it. Hit like and subscribe
1: and tell a friend. And if you have a weird case you'd like us to cover, let us know. Drop us, a,
0: drop us an email. Yes. Our email is dollsanddoom at gmail.com. All right. Well, we hope to bring you a new episode every Friday. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.